Good evening. I'm Axis. I'm Moner. And you're listening to The Late Night, a horror podcast. Welcome to the Halloween episode of The Late Night, a horror podcast. Tonight, we'll be watching The Halloween Society's Tales of Halloween from 2015, starring Barry Bostwick, Pollyanna McIntosh, and James Duvall. And we'll be following that with Michael Doherty's Trick or Treat from 2007, starring Quinn Lord, Anna Packin, and Robert Cox. We'll be right back after the tone. Stay tuned. So, mm-hmm. Tales of Halloween. It's a it's a horror comedy. So, being the pumpkin knave, <laughs> I shall roast a bit. Uh, no clue what the box office to budget was. Not sure I want to mm-hmm. know either, because I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's a horror comedy, clearly. Because uh, there was so much fucking cast and crew, it almost felt <laughs> like they were coming out of a clown car. Uh, you got 10 narratives and 12 directors. There's no fucking way in hell we are covering all that shit. Uh, just sit back and enjoy the laughs. Um, how to explain it? I'm, I'm said to be good with analogies. Anyone here ever see the Saturday Night Live skit where everybody in the fucking music industry is making a cameo on a rap song? Oh, don't worry, I'll put the link in the, uh, in the comments. Well, uh, Tales of Halloween felt like everyone at the horror convention saw Trick or Treat, got inspired, and then what should have ended up being two films became one giant mishmash. Um, Anyway, 12 directors. Here goes. Uh, Neil Marshall, Darren Lynn Boosman, Axel Carolyn, Lucky McKee, Andrew Cash, Paul Soleil, John Skip, Adam Girish, and Jace Anderson. Mike Mendez, Ryan Schifrin, Dave Parker. Who the <laughs> fuck are these people? Well, basically, if you ever went to a blockbuster video store and remember the direct-to-DVD horror section, these were the nice people whose work you passed on the way to re-rent torture porn, which says a lot more about you than it does them. Uh, basically, obscure talent that the hardcore horror fans in my old office jobs would whisper about around the water cooler. Uh, Neil Marshall is probably the most recognizable in the lineup for his work on the 2002 werewolf film Dog Soldiers. Uh, No shade to this lineup whatsoever, however, because A, this film was a lot of fun and paid homage to the classics while keeping them in the background. Uh, Not only did we have George Romero's Night of the Living Dead in the background, we also had John Landis, Barbara Crampton, and Mick Garris, you know, as set pieces. It would be like if The Sopranos had Pacino and Brando just sit in the background and read a newspaper, uh, which actually made it pretty fucking awesome. Um, Yeah, so the big credit I can throw these 12 directors, the film isn't a skipping record. It blends. It actually captured something Trick or Treat's studio cut only scratched the surface of which is how chaotic Halloween can feel. So that's one thing I, I love about Halloween. I, one, Halloween is the one night of the year where the night turns to you and says, game on, motherfucker. How much can you keep track of? Yep. Right? It's like going into a casino. You, you might come home, you know, actually to uh, quote one of the deleted scenes, you know, uh, one of the kids was like, my dad came, went to Mexico. He came back with this awesome mask. What else did he come back with? <laughs> Syphilis. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so much to love here. So, 
Uh, Adrian Barbeau is in it as a DJ. We never get her name, but anybody who's seen John Carpenter's The Fog will instantly recognize the voice of Stevie Wayne, KAB Radio. We don't get the name of the town either. It feels like it's supposed to be anywhere suburbia USA. It was shot around Los Angeles, so when you consider The Fog was on the West Coast, Barbeau's voice was definitely appropriate. Um, who else did we have on <laughs> Man, this track? Man, let's name a few. <laughs> uh, Nick Principe. Yeah, let's name a few. Um, yeah, Nick Principe, Late to Rest. Shout out to my boy. Uh, Grace Phipps, a.k.a. Gracie Gillum. Uh, Vampire Diaries and a lot of Disney movies, uh, which is interesting because she played like an evil cowboy. Uh, mm-hmm. Boo Boo Stewart from the Twilight Saga. Uh, Lynn Shay from Insidious. Uh, actually, Lynn Shay has been in about a million other things, but everybody from the, like the last two generations remembers her from Insidious. Sam Vitfer from The Mist. Uh, also Star Killer for, for anybody who watches The Force Unleashed. Uh, Greg Greenberg as, uh, uh, from Big Ass Spider. Uh, the late John Landis, uh, the man who directed Michael Jackson's Thriller music video and An American Werewolf in London. Joe Dante, who directed Gremlins and the Burbs. Barbara Crampton from Reanimator, who does not want you to remember her as a scream king. <laughs> Don't call her a scream queen. Um, Pollyanna McIntosh, who is Jadis from The Walking Dead. James Duvall, uh, who plays Frank the Bunny from Darky- Donnie Darko. Actually, I'm never sure whether James Duvall is the Frank the Bunny from Donnie Darko or if he just plays Frank the Bunny from Donnie Darko. But either way, James Duvall is in it. Um, Pat Healy, who's been in everything, uh, Innkeepers, Get Out, Cabin in the Woods, just to name a very, very, very small portion of his insane work. Uh, Adam Green, the director of Frozen 2010. And uh, in case you guys don't know, there's a great Marlboro joke in that film. Um, Alex Esso, Starry Eyes and The Haunting of Bly Manor. Stuart Gordon, the director of Reanimator and From Beyond. Mick Garris, the director of any good Stephen King adaption that Mike Flanagan and John Carpenter didn't direct. Mark Center, The Lost from 2006. Christina Klebe, Rob Zombie's Halloween. Kyra Gilchrist from It Follows. Uh, Claire, Car- C- Claire Kramer, Glory from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, fucking Glory was in there, and you guys probably missed it. John Savage from Carnosaur 2. Caroline Williams from the Ch- Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise. Oh, and Barry Boswick, who played Brad in the Rocky Horror fucking picture show. Okay? This film, I'm not even... That is, like, maybe... I'm saying that, like, this is maybe... Mm, part of the film's cast... The film is a dizzying Where's Waldo of horror talent. There isn't a single person present who doesn't connect to the genre or hasn't actually contributed something to the genre. So, um... My God. Yeah, you you know... (laughs) You've you've listed a lot. I, I was really looking forward to recording this because, like... I feel like the the virtue of our working relationship is that you remember every actor under Mm. the sun while I cluelessly stumble through the world of cinema being like, wow, they did a good job without remembering anyone's name. So thanks for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No problem. Okay, right up top, before I even talk about Tales of Halloween specifically, I have a question because I was reading an interview with the the head writer, the kind of organizer of Tales of Halloween, Axel Carolyn, on Daily Dead. And there's a particularly notable Mm. quote that she gave when she was asked about the inspiration for the film, which you touched on. Um, She said, 
We were also, of course, aware of Mike Dougherty's wonderful Trick or Treat, which set the bar really high for Halloween movies, especially when it comes to spooky visuals and atmosphere, but we deliberately aimed for a different tone. Trick or Treat is darker, less humorous. In an ideal world, you would watch Trick or Treat, sorry, in an, in an ideal world, you would watch Tales of Halloween at the start of the night to put you in the party mood, and you'd finish with Trick or Treat to close the night with some witching hour chills. This way, I feel both anthologies can really coexist, and I, for one, can't wait for Trick or Treat too. So, like, did you read this article before you picked the movies for this month, or do you two just share a brain? No, <laughs> no. Okay. No, I think she and I shared a brain. I think that that's exactly where... Okay, so I'll get to this later. Um, but yes, that was the intent. The reason why this this lineup works the way it does is because it's kind of mm-hmm. the only way you can do it. Like, if you sat there and you watched Trick or Treat first and then you watched no. this, it wouldn't really work the same way because... <clears throat> here's, here's the sad thing. I've hosted a lot of horror watching por- horror movie watching parties in my lifetime. And here's what happens. The beginning of the night, we have a lot of energy and we're very excited about horror movies. At the end of the <laughs> night, we can barely fucking keep yeah. track of anything. And so we'll we'll contrast this in a bit, but Trick or Treat yeah. is five storylines. They are five blended narratives. Yeah, it's a this lot. is 10 blended narratives. To go from 10 to 5 is much more merciful upon the human mm-hmm. mind than 5. No, to I mean 10. already it's So I like yeah. we've talked about, you know, off off mic. <laughs> um, you know, after I watched this twice. You have watched it many more times than that, I'm sure, but um Trick or Treat, okay. yes. Tales of Halloween, no. I well, I've watch watched both of them twice, as I, but, yeah. you know, in my normal prep process for the podcast, and I still mm-hmm. afterwards for Tales of Halloween, you know, when I was doing my reading, every time they would name one of the ten segments, I was like, ah, shit, which one's that? Oh, no. Okay. Um, all right. The one with the ghost. The ghost <laughs> is, uh, and the car. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Like, it was a lot to mentally juggle, like, when you're trying to analyze this film. Like, I think it mm-hmm. works effectively, like, when you're sitting and watching it consecutively, but there's a lot to manage, <laughs> like, as an audience member, and I'm sure as, you know, the coordinator of all of this as well. <laughs> well, I'd like to say, as as both a friend and as, a, as somebody who's been watching them for years and years and years, um, I also do not have the capacity yes. to remember all those titles, like, even for tonight's prep work, I mean, I'm sure there's a hardcore horror fan out there who can do all 15 off the top of their head. <laughs> Shout out to you, whoever you are. You're yes, awesome. You're truly. amazing. No, no, you are. Your brain awesome. works in a way that mine does not. But um, when you're juggling, yeah, but when you're juggling all the rest of it, like when you're juggling the rest of, of understanding, you know, the genre and doing all the other stuff, mm-hmm. there are things that get lost in the process. Um, and, and the more you work with people who are horror professionals, yeah. the more the stuff starts to blur the lines. And so... Mm-hmm remembering remembering um the names and the titles of the segments is actually kind of tricky if you don't watch the stuff religiously because i can remember cast members names i can remember actors no. names but the chapter i mean names, they also i don't think the I thing can do that it off the top of i, my head I to think i mentioned life. in the watch along too was that they put all of the 
kind of chapter names up at the front in those long opening credits, but they did not play yeah. them right before, like, the segment played. So by the time we got to the 10th segment, there's not a chance in hell I remembered the title they flashed up at the beginning of the, you know, the title credits, you know, up top. So I didn't make the connection so much when I was watching, so it was, like, backwards logic later. But with that being said, there were a lot of mm-hmm. fun things in there. And, and one of the things that I appreciated... Um, because we talked about naturally kind of in comparison with trick-or-treat um with how like cohesive trick-or-treat was one of my one of my kind of complaints and i'll get to this more um is about tales of halloween was that it felt a little disjointed in comparison but what i do appreciate about that is it allowed for a lot more diversity in tone like so many of the segments were pretty straight up horror comedy there was a lot of like laughs you know like laugh line kind of moments in there which is good i'm not complaining but then you got to have shorts like the the one that axel carolyn directed um what was that grim grinning ghost yeah um and that's the one where where the woman you know gets her car breaks down and she gets chased home by the ghost so something like that that there's not really maybe one laugh line up top but that's that's not comedy (laughs) it's not comedy in the same way that the other shorts are so by you know creating this anthology format it allowed for this real kind of showcase of different writing styles directing styles acting styles it was really fun um side note the the dog in the grim grinning ghost segment um was the writer director xl carolyn's dog anubis who is also in her full-length feature soulmate and she says she wants her dog in every movie she makes and like who wouldn't he's very talented (laughs) (laughs) awesome i think that the beauty of of tales of halloween is that for the moment anyway i think that it definitely has a permanent place in our genre Mm -hmm next to trick-or-treat and i'll tell you why we've had horror anthology films for almost a century which is something where if you talk to people and you know you talk to fans and they'll be like oh yeah there's creep show and there's tales from the dark side and that totally true uh german director richard oswald um Heinliche Geschichten, or um uncanny stories from 1919 is where we begin with a mix of robert louis stevenson and edgar Allan poe uh, we have seen the house that dripped blood, you know, in the 70s. Uh, but most people don't even know. Like, we, we, this stuff goes back about 100 years. We've had lots and lots and lots of short horror segment films. It's just that the thing that Doherty and that the Halloween Society did was they take the big step of doing two things. First, these are specifically Halloween-oriented <laughs> films. And... There, there, there aren't really a lot of others like this. Or, and you know what? I'm going to be completely upfront. I don't know of other Halloween anthology films. I know of Halloween-themed films, hundreds, but I don't know of Halloween-themed anthology films with blended narratives. And so Doherty took the big step. This was like you know bringing us into the atomic age of taking a modern horror genre and going ingeniously you know let's take the magic of halloween Mm -hmm. and let's try and capture it on film 
And that was the thing. Like, there are moments, we'll get to it in a little yeah. bit, because I don't really talk about it too much, but there's a moment where um, uh, Anna Packin's character is looking for somebody. And, you know, she's looking for um, a male <laughs> companion. Let's put it that way. And she's going through through the parade and it's really interesting because it's a twofold twofold effect that is accomplished in that moment because a lot of us are lonely on Halloween who are Halloween fans some of us you know some of us who are single when we're single on Halloween Halloween can be really a tough time to be lonely on because it's just like Christmas or New Year's Eve Um, and you know when you see other couples together it can make you feel a little bit down because that's what you want too and um or maybe you just want to be <laughs> between a male and a woman centaur. You know, who knows? Um, but yeah, and in which case, double whammy. But the, you know, or triple whammy, uh, considering what happens. Um, but the, uh, you know, the magic is that they, they captured some of the most, you know, you could tell that the writer, you know, when Doherty sat down to write it, and he sat down there and he was really sketching things out. He really caught a lot of the things that I felt during Halloween. And I'm sure, you know, I obviously wasn't the only fucking one because what happened, you know, I'll tell this during a little while, but essentially they tried to right. bury this film and that shit didn't work. That's how good yeah. the film was. So, um, yeah, I would say that when we're looking at Tales of Halloween, the reason why it's so beautiful and the reason why it's going to have a solid place right now in the lineup is because first it it really does feature people who contributed to the genre and which is something that horror fans value the other thing is also that um it it really did take it took a different spin on on trick-or-treat because most of us had already seen trick-or-treat at this point and so we watched it and a lot of us went not exactly what we were looking for (laughs) but not bad you know it wasn't it wasn't like you know it wasn't bad. I remember seeing Nick Principe a couple week a couple weeks after watching Tales of Halloween, him and the alien thing, and I was just like, I love you in that scene. It's like, trick or treat. Yeah, I, like, I love that. Yeah, and we were doing. Yeah, that it like, was. Yeah, my wife, my wife is a Pixar sucker too, so we we're like, trick or treat. We were doing like we're doing it for like days and days on there, like trick or treat. So it's an amazing, it was really amazing. There's a lot of great mm-hmm. segments. There's a lot to appreciate. Um, and then there's there's also, you know, aside from using horror actors and horror films as the backgrounds, because they didn't just use Night of the Living Dead. They also used the Cabin of Caligari and a few others. Um, there was also the fact that they, they, they definitely did nods to other famous horror franchises like you know the pumpkins bad seed segment mm-hmm. was definitely a nod to attack the killer tomatoes we i'm sorry right. we cannot go through every single one of these because it's 10 fucking stories but yeah i think it's watching. a lot of parts of it were that. very much like yeah. kind of a return to a classic form because we watched them in reverse chronological order like with thinking of trick-or-treat as the earlier movie mm-hmm. which decidedly feels like a right. more contemporary movie in terms of like the structure and and you know i mean also budget is makes a difference in that too but um mm. yeah and there's something i'd like to add to that though that is also because in 2007 i would also like to note trick-or-treat didn't technically hit the market yeah people are gonna say it came out in 2007 that's not wrong it was yep. it was put <laughs> up the butt numathon in 2007 <sighs> but it it hit the market in mm-hmm. October 8th, 2009. I'm sorry, October 6th. It hit the market in October 6th, 2009. And 
by October, by 2000, April of 2007, what had happened was Grindhouse from Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez came out. And during that time, there were already a lot of people who were trying to do this, this gritty Grindhouse, you know, whether they were using CGI or going for it with, with old school uh, mm -hmm. film, they were trying to accomplish this look because this actually didn't sure. work. This resonated strongly with horror fans, right? There are actually still people who I know who are not horror fans. Come to my house and they'll be like, Death Proof is one of Quentin Tarantino's films, if not the best Quentin Tarantino film. So there are these moments where you'll sit there and you'll watch these, these really gritty things. And I think that that's why it worked so well because we got a grindhouse trick-or-treat. And I think that is what led to some yeah. other horror films. Yeah, no, I mean, that's basically um, what I was going to say is that, like, I feel like they took the, this kind of, like, this format that Trick or Treat did, and then they were like, this is great, but it's almost like a return to the classics in a lot of ways in terms of the anthology structure, in terms of that kind of intro that we talked about, the super vintage, like, credits up top, the storybook references, the classic mm. movie references that are throughout it. So while it's a newer film, I think in some ways it feels older because it's so referential and reverential too, I think, to, you know, a lot of earlier mm -hmm. material. It's a real nostalgic kind of moment, I think, for a lot of a lot of these horror devotees who were the the directors and the writers of everything. And that I thought was really fun. And it was also really interesting. I mean, I think any like on processing it, I think too, like a lot of it is that I don't have a lot of familiarity with anthology films. Like, I think if these had been literal, you know, anthology book chapters or even episodes of an anthology TV series, I would have found, like, the, the lack of continuity less jarring. So, like, this is, like, a pretty new format to me. Yeah. But, like, when I was thinking about continuity, it was really interesting yeah. because in that same uh, Daily Dead interview with Axel Carolyn, um, there's, she talked a little bit about, about the, the working process for the movie. And so the interviewer asked her, um, this anthology differs from a lot of, sorry, this anthology differs from other recent multi-director anthologies in that it was shot during a continuous shoot with all the filmmakers on set instead of just, here you go, make your piece, you go make your piece and we'll stitch them all together. How did that process inform the finished film? So then Carolyn answers and she says, we scheduled it like a feature over the course of a month. Each film had two to three days. Because the whole idea was to work together, we started planning together from the start, bouncing ideas off each other and giving um, yep. and giving each other feedback. My job at script stage was to gather scripts, put them in rough order, pass on notes and suggestions, make sure no two shorts were alike, and that they all belonged in to a shared universe and finding links between them, characters who could show up in several stories. Then when we started shooting, we'd offer each other help wherever needed, and we all got to hang out on each other's set. It was awesome to see everyone's individual directing style and to cameo every once in a while. I'm in there a few times, cheering on feuding neighbors, getting mugged, getting arrested, and dead. The process really helped give the films a sense of unity, <laughs> even though they're all different from each other. It's clear that they belong to the same world. And, you know, after hearing that, I feel like my right. initial take was, like, super underappreciated, like, underappreciative, because in, like, in her mind, there's this really clear narrative thread between all of the stories. And, but also just as a creative process, that sounds like such a dream to work on, <laughs> like, to have this group of like-minded people get right. together and do a project like this is fascinating and really unusual. I think it also, 
I also think it had a lot of impact on things like like lately we had the horror film Candy Corn and um, you know a few years ago we had Rob Zombie's or more than a few years ago now (laughs) uh, we had Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 which was 2009 and I remember watching Halloween 2 in 2009 I really felt like there was an impact from Grindhouse upon that film as well where you could feel that the camera kind of had a different sort of look to it you could feel that there was something that Zombie himself had learned from it and I really thought that there was, I, I felt that that was really, really cool. When we're looking at this sort of grittier, grimier sort of take mm-hmm. on Halloween stories. Because if one actually considers Halloween the holiday, when we're actually thinking about it, um, you know, one thing we don't really, you know, because Hollywood always does this great job of making everything look clean and feel nice. And it's like The Sims and it's like, it's fucking spooky day. And it's like, no, dude, if you grew up in the 80s, pumpkin guts were on your sneakers. You know, if, you know, your your Halloween was you carrying out newspapers if you were not prepared uh, with uh, fucking pumpkin guts soaking into <laughs> newspapers and the shit was all over your sweater and like you sting, you know, your hands were sticky and then they felt dry and sticky because you weren't really ready. Like, no, that's look, let's not like the thing is, it's like Halloween is not a a it is a sexy holiday. But the funny thing is, it's like sex is not a clean thing. Mm-hmm. Sex is a sweaty, grimy, fun thing. You know, there's, and it really is. That's kind of what Halloween is. Like, we've really, Halloween is something where we try and wrestle with that. Yeah. But like, no, I mean, like, Christmas you know, is all about, costumes. yeah, Christmas is yeah. about making things it's perfect. About yeah, it's about, it, right. it's about, like, having yeah. this perfect, like, you know, lovely packaged gift bow yeah. kind of holiday experience. Halloween is about embracing the mess. Right. Right. Because the veil between the living and the dead is thinned. And you want to know something? Like, I think, you know, I still think that like one of the songs for Halloween that definitely like people are like, oh, let's listen to like, let's listen to Thriller. Nothing wrong with that. I have about 200 mixes of Thriller. Um, one song I listen to a lot is Oingo Boingo's Dead, Dead Man's Party where Danny Elfman, you know, like the, one of my favorite versions is him on his last performance, fucking shirtless and ripped on the stage after all the years, like, like howling into the microphone, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that's what actually what I think of is like everybody smells like body odor and they're moshing in a crowd. <laughs> you want to know something? That's Halloween. <laughs> Halloween is is an embracement of who we are. Which and I was talking with a few German friends and a few Italian friends about it. It's like that's not too far off of Carnival, which is you know uh, you know what we had in Venice, you know, and um, and what we still have in Germany and what we've brought back in Venice since the 70s um, because it was banned for some time. Which is this idea that there was kind of um, Let's say there was more of a moral flexibility to how one approach, uh, yeah, to how one approach social interaction with one another. Mm-hmm. There was kind of a, you know, I think that there's a, there's, I was actually looking at, at uh, video clips of the New York City Halloween parade uh, this afternoon. And there was one lady I remember from a parade years past where she was running around with a, a sign that said, use condom sense tonight. <laughs> and, and I kept thinking, you know, that, you know, fuck sleep all day, party or night. Part, I'm sorry, fuck sleep all day, party all night. That should totally be on a shirt at oh Target. Oh my God, you know, yes. Like this, yeah. With a fucking, with a, with a pumpkin carved out in, where the O is. Yep. Like in condom sense. You know, like, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I love this discussion, too, because this is, like, the polar opposite of, like, my experience of Halloween growing up. Like, I was clearly, you know, not a child in New York in the 80s. So I grew yeah. up with, like, Bar Harbor Halloween, which is... Mm so different where like everything's on one street like all the kids line up in their little costumes everybody decorates and like the town volunteers to like buy candy because it's such a big deal and you all finish by like going to the church steps to get like hot apple cider and like and then drive home after an hour and it's like it's like the most polite kind of holiday experience you could have (laughs) so it's you know it, like I love, I love the gritty Halloween version, but I'm like, wow, what a, what a, what a world you lived in! What a time it was! <laughs> yeah, like when I was a kid growing up in high school, I, I remember I would get invited to parties, and there were just people, people from other, like, because you know, people from other towns were hooking up with people from, from you know, they're just like, they'd known each other for 20 minutes. Like, you want to go in the living room and make out? <laughs> Whose house is this? Firstly, I walk in and I'm like, Whose fucking house are we in? Shouldn't I, like, identify myself and say, Hi, can I buy you something? Or, like, mm-hmm. no. No. <laughs> no. What I got is, I got a really drunk chaperone. It was a 70-year-old man who was, like, totally drunk going... I'm wearing a hideous mask tonight. He's like, no, I'm kidding you, beautiful man. I'm like, I'm, oh, this is making me uncomfortable. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for, thank you for, is this your house, sir? Did you just walk in? No, I don't know what's going on. All right. Mm -hmm. Welcome to Nassau County. Um, (laughs) It's interesting. It's an interesting world I came from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You just, you just walk in last night. The thing is, there was a disadvantage to me always being sober for Halloween was mm-hmm. I remembered everything. Mm-hmm. So like Mike Doherty, I can write everything down, but me and Mike could probably sit there and go, there's a lot of stuff we don't want to remember. There are times where we were probably both in school and, and like probably somebody came up to us and went, so who did I make out with last night? <laughs> it's like, what was that like, did I know that person? No, dude, you didn't know that person at all. <laughs> By the way, we're not sharing a Coca-Cola can for, like, the next six to ten months. Just letting you know. After you get some blood tests, you know, get some blood work done and uh, then come back and see me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I say, I, you know, that I don't, like, I didn't have the gritty Halloween experience. But I think I just subbed in for that, um, being generally sober among theater kids at college, which sounds almost identical to everything you've just described. (laughs) So... Yeah. <laughs> and it even included costumes. So <laughs> I grew up, I knew one, I knew an older, you know, I was one of the youngest kids in the group when I was growing up. And there was one who was like 26, 27, who knew everything when I was 13, mm-hmm. right? So there was this guy sitting there asking his brothers, you know, did you, did you go to class again? Nah, your eyes are so full of shit, they're turning brown, you know? And, uh, and then he looked at me and he's like, you're a moaner? Yeah, I heard about you. You're that kid who knows where all the exits are. I like you. You're that kid who's going to survive if there's a fire. The rest of these fucks are screwed. And I sat there and I was like, 
I sat there and I thought, even from 13, I was like, I am never going to have fun ever in my life. Oh, yeah. I am just always going to be the one saving everybody. Oh, yeah. No, I... I, I I'm the white man. This is why <laughs> This is why we, you know, we connect because... We're friends. Yeah, yes. yeah. We're I've both had, white mages. I have had many nights physically supporting, like, for, like, I, th- I feel like one of my, ref- like, point of references for this was, like, after a, a particularly um, exciting party in college there was me at you know a whopping five foot one supporting Mm -hmm. most of the full body weight of one of my very dear friends who was conservatively Mm -hmm. six foot five like probably Mm -hmm. taller i'm bad at estimating um and Mm -hmm. on so many substances that i could not keep track of them and just Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. slowly supporting him for like a full mile walk back to campus while he like Mm. had to take breaks to analyze how pretty the uh, asphalt of the road was (laughs) they'd be like oh my god it's sparkling oh my god (laughs) i'm like okay buddy we're gonna get you there Amok, amok, amok. Yep. Tis firm. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but at least she could stand on her own two feet. He could not. Right. <laughs> well, it's true. <laughs> that would take me in the morning. No, I wouldn't. Come back. Oh, man, I should be wearing my Hocus Pocus shirt. Yeah, and then you got, shirt. you know, the best part of that, your shoulder goes numb. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then you're like, you're walking in there, kind of like, it looks like you're the one who had the problem. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. It's like, did I have a stroke? No. <laughs> yeah, the much more wholesome version of that was uh, one of my friends who came to find me after he had taken LSD for the first time. And he was like, he was very excited about it. And he was like, man, this is wild. And just like needed to sit and process. But I was making banana bread at the time. So he kind of just arrived out of the woods, sat down at the kitchen table and just spaced out for about an hour while I stacked banana peels on his head and then served him banana bread at the end of it. <laughs> And this is why, kids, if you're going to be sober. Also, kids, if you're listening to this, turn this Please the fuck don't. off. You shouldn't be listening. Please to don't. Secondly, but if you are going to continue listening to this, just remember, always bring a camera. Yes. Yeah. Um, evidence. Evidence and leverage. Let me just say, as both an accountant, mm-hmm. horror author, evidence and leverage. I know. I, I missed opportunities leverage. by being far too kind. Yeah. Evidence and leverage, kids. Evidence. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, trick or treat. <laughs> moving along. Yeah. Um, trick or treat. So even though the film was done in 2007, it was shelved because Warner Brothers, in their infinite wisdom, didn't want another film competing with Saw Force profits. Oh my God, Saw Four. Though it should be noted that even Saw Four had a budget to box office of ten to $139 million. <laughs> Hashtag fuck witches, make money. Um, it was released on October 6, 2009, and I know because I was at the Best Buy the morning it was released. <laughs> I was in the parking lot an hour before. First, I came in the night before oh to see if they put it on the shelves oh yet. Oh my God. Begged the guy to go back and open the fucking box and just sell it to me. He wouldn't. Um, he, he said, I have to beat job. the shit out of other customers just like every other normal person. <laughs> and so I came at the parking lot was is fucking empty as shit. I think uh, I don't remember what day it was, but it was like a weekday. I walked in. There was like three copies on the fucking shelf. 
Uh, and then I grabbed that shit like I was stealing the monkey in, in you know, in an Indiana, in, the golden monkey in an Indiana Jones film. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah, I, there, you know, the, let me just say, it changed, it changed the way I processed Halloween horror films. I probably watched it three times in two days. I, I gave it to my brother. Then I gave, and then I, I gave it to my lawyer. And then I gave it to my like, and, and you know, some of my friends, um, like Michael Doherty said, he's like, if you love this, please retweet it, spread it like the plague. So I did as Michael told me, <laughs> and I spread it like the fucking plague, and I made sure that everybody watched it. Uh, so it was at the last Halloween watch along party I did in 2009, and it was crazy. Um, 2009 was a lot of great firsts for me. That was also the first time I saw the Birthday Massacre live, which is also one of my first and last live concerts. It's very sad I didn't get to see them more often because Roomwork has a great relationship with them. Um, but yeah, the the whole house was it was hundreds of people in that. Oh, yeah, it was no, I shouldn't say that. it was <laughs> dozens of people in the house, and it was a lot of fun. And I think we watched Halloween. We watched Trick or Treat last, but we went till four o'clock in the morning watching four horror movies as we usually did. Um, which is why I can confidently say, if you start with Tales of Halloween and then you end with Trick or Treat, you know, at two o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. you, you there's no other way. You can't do Tales of Halloween at, at two o'clock in the morning if everybody's been watching three horror movies beforehand. That shit just doesn't work. So. Um, Let's see. Budget is listed at twelve million. We have no idea what was recuperated. I just want to be clear about that. This film has gained an insane cult following. Yeah. Obviously, right? Um, we have no idea what was recuperated for for twelve million. Um, I can say that this is the only film that I know of, other than Houseu where there was an insane amount of money left on the floor and somebody should have been fired for the decision to not screen it in theaters. This was by and fucking far the dumbest move I've ever seen big Hollywood ever make. Now, I don't know, because... The funny thing about this story is I'm sure Michael Doherty could tell the story better than I could and I have not looked into the matter enough because it just pisses me off. I am not certain whether or not it is Legendary Pictures, which is basically someone that collaborates with. You know, mm-hmm. Legendary Pictures is famous for Batman Begins, you know, the Nolan trilogy. That's all Batman, you know, that's that's, you know, that's the house that Batman built. <laughs> so, um Legendary Pictures um, you know, was the one that really backed Trick or Treat, and then mm. Warner Brothers was basically the one that took it over. Um, whether or not that was the wisest move on earth or not, I can definitely say I don't think it was because I don't see how a series of torture porn films would have done better than a series of of Halloween anthology films because. Especially, this is something where all horror fans know and love it, whereas not everybody is on board with mm-hmm. with uh, with Saw. Yeah. Really, it's yeah. not... And, like, listen, no shade to James Wan or Leigh Whannell. 
I'm not saying that you guys aren't great. I'm not saying that like you, you know, you guys haven't you know done your part for the industry. No. Or that's not a great. No, like it, not but, everybody wants to watch a gore piece. <laughs> like that's not a controversial not statement. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And it's just that it didn't make a whole lot of sense to shelve it. These were yeah. these actually felt like two different animals. It didn't yeah. feel like they were competing at all. I also think that the timing of the releases could have been different. I don't really think that Saw 4 ever needed to be the October no. release. I think you could have easily done Saw in September or November, still yeah. gotten the same amount of seats filled, and, and Hat Trick or Treat take over October, and maybe even do a crossover, because I'm pretty sure that fucking Jigsaw and, and Sam would have gotten along <laughs> just fine. Because they're all both rules oriented. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, no, I mean there are a thousand ways they could have done this better, essentially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, we we got there in the end, and people found it, which is good. Yeah. Like the underground yeah. publicity this received is a blessing, given Insane. everything that was set up against it. Yeah. yeah. Some scenes were shot in location in Vancouver. Uh, mm-hmm. Not really too sure about more than that because uh, a lot of it was also shot in studios in Vancouver. They had a couple of streets that they that they did it on. It looks like they kind of renovated those houses since. Um, here we basically have five narratives that overlap quite wonderfully and binding them together is the character of Sam played by child actor Quinn Lord who was eight at the time. Yeah, side According note, to- we also see him as the, the little creepy peeping Tom in the changing room yeah. scene, which I don't think we mentioned in the in the watch-alongs. We did. We, did we? I don't remember that. We did. Okay, then I cut totally that. Mentioned that. Scrap it. I totally forgot. <laughs> yeah, and so um, according to Doherty, he let Quinn improvise a bit on Sam and he said that there was a moment where he pretended to put a cat in the bag and he was nice and creepy it's like here kitty good kitty and then like walked off with the bag and uh there's a bit more of him on the deleted scenes those deleted scenes I I still do not know exactly how many there are um Shout Factory put out an edition in 2018 uh, I could say that the, the ones I have seen are so fucking funny and they they actually put a very different spin on the film i think that they are i think it's worth purchasing that and having a look um there are you know what i think is put back into the film that was cut out of the film was dicier things where they were more worried about it being less of a family film like what the fuck are they smoking (laughs) like if you have yeah, we, it's like listen. Once you have nipples and gore all over the place, I don't know what the fuck. Yeah, family yeah, film I don't. You're trying to I don't know for. what definition of family film could have possibly applied to this, even in the cinematic release. Like, right. I am not showing this to my family. <laughs> it's right. not gonna happen. Right. Um. So, I would say that they're very funny too, mm-hmm. but there's there's a lot where, and again, we won't give it away this time but there's a lot of moments where they're they're just it's just good stuff you should you know you should definitely go find them um we do you know the the movie starts with a kid who smashes pumpkins played by brett Kelly of bad santa fame he's quickly killed with poison candy by dylan baker who you probably remember from the 90s or every spider-man film with toby Maguire. 
And he plays the town's school principal, who is also into decapitating kids' heads and carving them with his son, Billy, who thinks Charlie Brown is an asshole. And so I think Billy deserves his own franchise, or yes. at least his own corner in the trick-or-treat universe. Um, uh, Quinn Lord does play the peeping Tom in the costume shop while the werewolf girls are getting dressed. Also, there's Rochelle Eights from Hemlock Grove. Uh, Brian Cox from Super Troopers and the 2002 remake of The Ring plays cranky old Mr. Krieg, who is a retired bus driver with an NRA membership in his pocket. Uh Um, And a pack win just before True Blood uh, is in this, which I thought was really cool. She did a movie called Darkness back in 2002 that we'll get to at some point in our our broadcast. (laughs) Uh, I think that she is, you know... Definitely. She's been in the horror game for a while, and she's always been really good. Uh, I would also like to mention some of the people who aren't, you know, mentioned as often. Uh, Gerald Peitz, who played the younger Mr. Krieg, is a stuntman who's been in dozens of horror movies. And I thought that um, Peitz's work, you know, deserved uh, a little bit more recognition. I was surprised I didn't see him more on YouTube mm-hmm. doing interviews. Um, another one who I really love is Lauren Lee Smith, who played Anna Paquin's, Anna Paquin's bigger sister, Danielle. Now, I've always thought it was a shame she didn't get, you know, she hasn't done bigger roles because she's super talented. Uh, her range between uh, Lie With Me in 2005 and then How to Plan an Orgy in a Small Town in 2015 is is quite remarkable. Um those, those are definitely films with her worth watching. She has this tattoo on her back in Trick or Treat, and I always wonder if it was Doherty's idea or her idea, and you only glimpse it for a second on the camera, but every horror fan I've known has gone back to that scene and hit pause. It reads Nil Desperendum, uh, Latin for Never Despair, and I really love that about <laughs> about it, right? Which is a make, turn a frown upside down. Um, yeah, just I also want to say, I, you know, in terms of the a werewolf's killing boy scene. I oh really hate that IMDb has Matthew Kevin Anderson listed as clerk. He had a name, okay? <laughs> it was, it was, uh, what was it? Andrew? Josh? Oh, who the fuck cares? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it was really Josh. But uh, I love that. It's like clerk. <laughs> uh-huh. I was Josh. No, you were clerk. Fuck you. Red shirt number five. His um, title was more recognizable than his name. Sweet guy. Right. <laughs> I just want to say that werewolf scene takes one look back at the howling to your sister is a werewolf and says, makeup department, hold our beers. Sybil Danik, uh-huh. this one's for you. Uh-huh. Yeah. We also have some other some people who are overlooked, like C. Ernst Harth, who played the guy in, in the baby costume, uh-huh. uh, who was passed out, and Christine Willis playing Mrs. Henderson, who was definitely a werewolf too, because you could see she was pushing the guy in the hot dog costume from her party into the pile of dead man meat before the werewolf smorgasbord um also there was uh brit mckillop uh one she's the daughter of a producer mostly did the voice of tralala in the my little pony franchise before playing an evil (laughs) angel costumed macy i just want to say she probably took one look at the script and went yes yes this is totally who i am good for her. And she played across from actress Sam Todd, who played Rhonda. Uh, She has been in very little else. Now she's an assistant producer. I would like to say her latest interview was at Scares That Care in uh, 
you know, late this her latest interview is at the latest scares that cure this year. I will um, put the link to that in the description. It was great to see her again. Uh, but I would like to say in terms of like this film, there was a lot to appreciate. Um, yeah, but Sam was really the star of the show. And I feel that that was kind of what Tales of Halloween was missing. You know, we had Adrian Barbeau as this kind of nameless DJ in the background. We didn't really get a one character who kind of glued the whole thing into one piece. And I think that that is something where mm -hmm. if you're going to an attempt a Halloween anthology with blended narratives, I do think it would be a good idea to have something that blends the narratives together yeah. and not just blend them by way of characters mishmashing into the into the scenes. Although I don't think that that's bad either. I think it would be cooler to have one kind of binding agent. And so Sam was somebody where when you're looking at him, you know, for me, as somebody who understands, uh, you know, Halloween's history, he is essentially the enforcer, you know, mm -hmm. because it's funny because a lot of people ask me, like, well, what is he? What does he represent? He's essentially the holiday of Halloween's enforcer of the rules. Uh, I actually thought a lot of Rufus from Pulp Fiction, right? He's like, Mr. Wallace doesn't like to be <laughs> fucked by anyone else but Mrs. Wallace. That was kind of what I got out of out of <laughs> Sam, was a you were going to do what the fucking rules state, or God help me, I'm going to open you up with this lollipop. Yeah, you know, as a, as a rule-passionate child, I, I liked Sam a lot, unsurprisingly. <laughs> I I do hope that if we have a sequel that we go back to, we do address the fact that Pumpkins were not really carved for Halloween until the Irish started to do it in America yeah. because it was simply easier to carve pumpkins. Before that, we had larders full of turnips that we yeah. would carve. Yeah, carved turnips, by the way, fucking terrifying. Finding yeah. those guys make pumpkins like look. Heads. Yeah, pumpkins look friendly. <laughs> yeah, a turnip looks like it wants to eat your kidneys. <laughs> <laughs> It wants to slow dance Compton style before it kills you. Yes, it's it's definitely a fucked up little guy. I could Sam's cousin or Sam's brother. I'm guessing this is Sam's older brother, older sister. Would be cool if it was a little sister in the roots and just kind of grow down like green. Yeah, hair. yeah. No, I love the idea of like you know Sam being the the American incarnation, but we get you know a visit from the original Irish cousin that's a horrifying right. turnip creature. <laughs> <laughs> and much more brutal, naturally. What's her name? Jacqueline. <laughs> She's here to fuck shit up. Oh my god. That would be like, are you so still fun. doing are you still doing candy? That's awesome. I brought this actual show. Let me show you how this works. <laughs> yeah, you know, I really appreciate your hallmark version of this, but let me introduce you to some <laughs> pagan traditions because someone's right. about to fuck some shit up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That'd be cool, right? Just comes comes to whatever tree stump that Sam lives in, comes to stay, fucking like blasting Dropkick Murphys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, hey, I know how much you love the rules, so I brought you a copy of my rule book. Let's see how to play right. this game. <laughs> you just see like a fucking codex hits the desk. Yeah. It's like, oh shit. Yeah, it's like getting, you know, the full Dungeons and Dragons player's manual. <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh, you need to know what to do when somebody tries to give you, you know, like, old people candy. Did somebody try to give you a cough drop instead of, you know, candy on Halloween? Right. Check Appendix C. 
<laughs> you can just take that kneecap right off. You don't have to weigh back. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, yeah. the writers Sam, of Trick or Treat 2, hit us up if you have any questions. And Sam was... I just want to say, in terms of makeup, though. Oh my god! Everybody yes. was terrifying when they fucking morphed out. This right? like, shit the was so good. The ghoul children from the school bus were terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, I mean, actually, the funny thing is, we don't really get to see the ghoul children without their costumes on. And I can only, I shudder to think what they look like without their shit on. But uh-huh. the the scary, like Sam, definitely had a very special. Holy fucking shit, do you look terrifying. Like, it's, wow, he has X's for eyes. And, uh-huh. you know, he's just, like, he's a really aggressive-looking little pumpkin. Yeah. Like, you want to talk about a bad seed. That's uh-huh. a bad Yeah, seed. I never expected the hood to come off for some reason. So when it did, I was like, <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> that's not that's not where I thought we were going. I thought you were, like, some little, like, you know, little voodoo doll creature. Like, I didn't think there was a vegetable under there. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Actually, pumpkins are fruit axis. You know, there's a certain cross-section between functional fruit and vegetable groups that we can discuss after the podcast. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, Sam is a special pup- people fucker-upper, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I will say that the, the things that I thought were, that I really appreciated about Trick or Treat was... Um, yeah, it does give it a witchy feeling. It does mm-hmm. give it a... gives Halloween more of a magical feeling. I don't know if witchy was the word I would have used. I felt more... Um, I definitely felt that there was kind of an enchantment. Yeah. But there was also a... I think that the the thing that both nights bind together is that, again, Halloween is enchanting. But if anybody's ever read a Grimm's fairy tale, there is danger to enchantment. Yes, yeah, no, everything yeah. felt undeniably eerie. Like, it, it's something yeah. where I think it really captured, like you mentioned before, the idea of Halloween is that it's when the veil is thinnest, and I feel like it captured that idea of things feeling just, like, a little different. Like, everything feels mm-hmm. off, but rife with possibility, but also danger. Like, it's a really special feeling. Which is why I always thought the sexy thing kind of fit into it. Yeah! It's just, like... <laughs> Everybody's nervous. Well, yeah, people go to the movie theaters and make out. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, why wouldn't they do that all night long if they were all feeling nervous about the veil being thin? So, yeah, I felt that, like, fear was a natural ingredient or a natural catalyst to... One of the many natural catalysts that fear provides is, you know, the erotic. But um, I think that it's, it's actually very interesting because we've made it into a children's holiday. Yeah, see, this makes sense, but I will say I did think you were going to say when you were like, oh, yeah, the natural eroticism, like the veil thinning, I was like, oh, so we're fucking ghosts? That's where I thought you were going? So this is a more refined version of the conversation. (laughs) I mean, yeah, no, I've never thought of, yeah. Jeez, thank you for setting, putting the bar on the floor for me. Yes, um, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think that the... I think that it's interesting that we turned it into a children's holiday yes. because that is not really what it started off as, right? We had souling, um, which was introduced, you know, more or less during the Victorian era um, and uh, or the colonial era before mm-hmm. we got to the Victorian era. Um, so we had, you know, turning it into a children's holiday is somewhat strange. It was something where we actually had a lot of respect for the idea that the dead passed on. Mm-hmm. 
I will say that Halloween has been misunderstood quite a bit over the years. I've met a lot of people who think that Halloween is a celebration of evil, which is also... I can understand how one would misinterpret it if one didn't know jack shit about the holiday. Uh, But it's like, oh... There's devils. They must be evil. It's like, no, dude, go go back. And yeah, and I mean, if you just... go if you go way back to you know again, like go back to to Solon and like uh, pre-Christian kind of um, Ireland and mm. places like that, there's a ton of fertility rituals that kind of came into mm. play with this, both like pre and post Roman contact of these kinds of traditions. Like this is the time when you'd find out who could be the next one to get married and who could have children, and it was a lot about romance, fertility, sex, like all of that stuff. Actually, that's it's funny that you bring that up. That's also a there are hundreds and hundreds of Halloween party games from mm-hmm. from back in the day. I would recommend reading Lisa Morton's The Halloween Encyclopedia for that, um, where she actually lists all of those different games that are played. And um, the I would also like to point out that that is also one of James Joyce's more undersung stories, uh, short pieces is when there is a girl who is, uh, she's not very good looking, and she plays the game to, about who she's going to get married to, and her father gets upset and, and, and calls the game off because basically she's not going to have a husband. And I will say that it's one of those, more, yeah, again, capturing the loneliness uh-huh. of Halloween uh-huh. because it's the idea that the divination, you know, the divination rituals, you know, are party games and that you that there might not be a lid for every pot and how painful that is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, see also Ralph in The Simpsons on Valentine's Day when he doesn't get a Valentine. You know, this horror, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's the horror of loneliness also. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I, like, I think that as much mm. as Halloween is about the unreal, like, it is about discovering the real too. It's finding out these truths that you don't always want to know when you're handling yeah. ideas like divination and stuff like that. So it's through unreality that you come in touch with the realist emotions like fear and loneliness and sadness and like all of these darker side of things. Which is technically just the other side of the coin yeah. of life, right? Yeah. It's just, it's death. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Um, so- <laughs> Yeah, so I I want to flash back to the uh, we there are two big things that you've already touched on, which I think were both of some of our favorite parts. One, the werewolf metamorphosis. I am still thinking mm-hmm. about how freaking cool it was. I love the visuals of the werewolves just peeling off their human skin to reveal monsters underneath. But if you've listened to the rest of this podcast, you'll probably be unsurprised to find out that I started researching animal metamorphosis to find any correlations to the process. So the actual metamorphic process we see of the skin shedding and dramatic physical change is most similar to those of insects that exhibit what's called incomplete metamorphosis. That's a three-stage metamorphic process where they transform directly from the larval stage to their adult stage by shedding their exoskeletons. And that is in comparison to a complete metamorphosis, which has four stages, like a butterfly, egg, larva, pupa, adult. However, the most complex animals that undergo metamorphosis are amphibians. They're the only animals with a spine that can actually do it, and they metamorphosize real slowly and gradually. No dramatic skin shedding about it. 
So while there is unfortunately no mammalian metamorphosis recorded in textbooks, which is a huge bummer because I want wings and new sensory organs, they do kind of redirect. This turns around to another question that I asked in the watch along, which is how the fuck do they change back to their human forms? Like if, if you shed your whole skin, you end up as this big overgrown wolf. How do you turn back into a human when, you know, the moon sets? So turns out there is a process called reverse metamorphosis. Now, there are a couple of shaky examples of this, but the best one by far, and the most apropos one in our case, is an example of this little jellyfish known as Turritopsis dornii, or informally, the immortal jellyfish. So these little guys, they start their lives as larvae called planulae, which settle down on the seafloor, and they multiply into a colony of polyps, hundreds and thousands of identical clones arising from the same planula. Eventually, those polyps create an unusual branched pattern and then begin to create little buds, little, you know, leaves on their branches, as it were, that grow into adult jellyfish, which aimlessly float through the sea, snacking on whatever drifts into their gobs, including lots of other jellyfish that they enthusiastically cannibalize. But the cool thing, the cool thing is what happens if the mature jellyfish gets stressed. So if the environment is not good, if they get sick, too old, or, you know, the vibes are simply off, the jellyfish will actually revert back to its poly, to its polyp form and start a new colony all over again, which will eventually grow into a new adult and just rinse and repeat, loop it forever. They can do this indefinitely. Too old? Polyp time. Done as a polyp? Adult again. Just again and again and again. And you've got a jellyfish that will never die. You know, you know, unless something bigger eats it. But, like, you've created both functional immortality and something that has the capability of reversing its own life cycle to go to an earlier metamorphic phase, which is effectively what our werewolves do. And every time I get anxiety from now on, I will be fantasizing about regressing to polyp form to ditch all of those pesky brain functions. <laughs> one thing one thing I'd like to just hop in here and mention, because I forgot to mention it earlier, was that, yeah. you know, the only th- gripe I have with Michael Doherty's trick or treat mm-hmm. is that the rules he makes up for this Halloween are not exactly true, right? Mm-hmm. He gives you these rules and it's kind of like, you get this, these are actually based upon, like, the, the way that they were shot. They were based on these um, Centron uh, Halloween safety videos that I used to have to, they, they used to force us to watch in elementary school when I was a kid. And you're sitting there, and, like, there was all this, like, Halloween safety. And that's cool, but, like, never blow out a jack-o'-lantern. Okay, that one makes sense, mm-hmm. right? Never go out alone. Mm, also makes sense. Uh, check your candy, yeah, was actually more of a satanic panic yeah. thing that came in. That wasn't really a rule before, but I did think that it was interesting that they that they had this this sort of lineup, and I, I felt that the that the fact that they had Centron in there was interesting. And I hope that if we do do a sequel, I hope that we'll see more of whoever the fuck made these particular yes. rules, yeah. and then maybe. Sam himself was writing them in the back and like mailing, you know, on a typewriter and then mailing them mm-hmm. into the fucking programmer, like, or else. Well, I mean, it feels like some of it he learned by example, like the checking your candy thing, like, 
historically, yeah, absolutely satanic panic. But you also see that the candy bar that he uses to slice Krieg's ankles is Mm -hmm. the same one that was from the principal earlier in the movie, which he packed razor blades into. So, you know, it, it is a direct, like example of creating rule sets based on the behavior of the people in the universe that they create so it's like it totally makes sense american gods yes almost right yes oh fantastic yeah, yeah I, I love that as like a crossover a idea little interesting trick he seems to be able to do the thing that i wasn't really clear on is whether that candy he makes starts off being like because he makes the candy mm-hmm. into weapons after he's touched the candy it seems like the candy itself takes on its own durability Hmm. like no no, i'm sorry you can't make a box cutter out of a out of a candy bar but he managed to do it you can't make a you know like a scythe out of a lollipop but he does i mean okay well two things one he's magical two you don't know where he gets those lollipops he could have them custom made he does not have human teeth so he could be chomping through solid glass and we don't know maybe that's bulletproof glass he's just nibbling on and then slicing dicing with (laughs) um he's amazing yes yeah yeah he is star quality true star quality speaking of amazing kids i also want to talk about the bus kids um because champions we love them also their design the backstory of how they got their look is one of the most interesting facts about the movie to me so first off all of the actors for the the kids who who died on the bus and came back a little uh, grisly they were all actually disabled kids who reportedly had a great time on set and i just i'm always happy to hear about a kids who had fun in horror movies and b happy to hear about casting disabled actors as disabled characters so 10 out of 10 great work all around but costume design so the costume design particularly the masks were based on the work of two really interesting photographers the first one is Ralph Eugene Meadyard, who is a Kentucky-based optician by trade and photographer at heart. Ralph bought his first camera in 1950 to photograph his newborn son, and inadvertently discovered a creative passion that he would follow for the rest of his life. He worked at the optician six days a week, but on Sundays, his family would skip church to hop in the car and drive around the countryside looking for odd and abandoned locations to shoot, typically using his wife and three children as the models. He produced thousands of photos throughout his life with a wide range of styles, but he's best known for his southern gothic style photos, including a notable series of photos with his models posed in these slightly off-putting masks. And the photo that stuck out to me, which I'll include in the episode upload on social media, is an untitled 1962 photo of his wife and three kids perched on these rows of bleachers wearing Halloween masks of these distorted human faces, their casual posture standing in stark contrast with the ominous presence of the masks. And it's hard to see it and not think of the kids sitting on the bus and trick-or-treat, you know, just sitting comfortably on their everyday ride home while simultaneously remaining mysterious and slightly off-putting due to the weird masks covering their faces. Mm-hmm. And it's an odd moment that's created when the human brain looks at a child and feels uncomfortable. And that's something that both Trick or Treat and Meat Yard's photography nail really, really well. 
Mm-hmm. So Ralph uh, enjoyed mm-hmm. marked success with his photography, featuring in galleries alongside professionals. Despite that, he insisted on calling himself a dedicated amateur for the duration of his career. Mm-hmm. Um, he kept f- uh, photographing until he died of cancer in 1972, and his final mm-hmm. collection was published mm-hmm. posthumously in 1974. He is a super interesting guy, and there is a lot of cool discussion to be found about the reasoning behind his usage of masks and his working style if anyone wants to learn more. Even if you don't want to do the reading, I totally recommend looking up some of his photography because it's super atmospheric and thought-provoking. Again, his name is Ralph Eugene Meadyard if you want to find him. But moving a little bit more contemporary, let's talk about Diane Arbus. So if you know photography, you probably know about Diane Arbus. I do not know photography, and therefore I did not know about her before this. But Diane started her career as a commercial photographer alongside her husband from 1946 to 1956, before stepping back from that role to pursue her personal photography full-time. She started her work photographing on her home New York City streets, but soon started roaming the country as she took assignments from magazines and various commissions. She's most well-known for her photography of outcasts and the unusual. She has hundreds of photos of circus performers, little people, twins, the disabled, transgender people, giants, nudists, the list goes on, but her photography focused on featuring people who were often ignored or looked down upon by society. Now, she's received some criticism for her voyeuristic approach to photography, but she viewed her own work as really tender and genuine insight into the lives and experiences of her subjects. And one of the photo series that I think really exemplifies that um, is her final collection of untitled photos uh, taken from 1970 to 1971, um, which is unedited and unnamed before her death in 1971. So this series was taken at a school for adults with developmental and intellectual disabilities in New Jersey, and it really defied the common trend of bleak institutional photography by instead focusing on joyful experiences, moments of play, levity, and the celebration of several holidays, including Halloween. And the photo that I'll share from Diane from this series is a row of four people wearing costumes with their heads covered in decorated paper bag masks. The homemade quality of these paper masks and the costumes, two of which look like repurposed large burlap sacks, echoes the lovingly handmade quality of some of the costumes we saw on the children in the school bus and trick-or-treat. What I really love about this particular photo, aside from the visual references from the movie, of course, is the sense of pride and joy you can feel from the people. Despite their masks, you can see them holding muscles tightened in excitement as they grasp each other's hands and show off their costumes for the camera. These, of course, are real people with complex lives that go far beyond the movie characters they served as muses for, but it still gives me hope to imagine that these folks got to enjoy a full and happy Halloween celebration that year. Now, another fun fact about Diane's photography, her iconic photo, Identical Twins, Roselle, New Jersey, 1967, was direct inspiration for the twins in The Shining. The sisters weren't originally supposed to be twins at all, but a crew member named Leon Vitali suggested the change to Kubrick and used Diane's photo as a reference when they were creating the look for the twins. Now, just to to wrap up Diane Arbus's story, she received a lot of acclaim and notoriety during her lifetime, but still lived in poverty as she struggled to find buyers for her art. 
And after her suicide in 1971, her work was curated by her daughter and received showcase collections in many museums. Indeed, the first major retrospective of her art at the uh, Museum of Modern Art opened the year after her death and received more visitors than any MoMA exhibition to date, with millions of people continuing to see the traveling show until 1979. By contrast, while she was alive, the Metropolitan Museum of Art had at one point agreed to buy three of her photos for a mere $75 each and changed their mind only buying two because they <laughs> said they had a lack of funds. Right. So it's a real shame that we lost both of these prolific photographers while they were only in their 40s. You have to wonder yeah. what kind of images we would have gotten to see if they had gotten to enjoy a full and fully funded life practicing their craft for decades longer. Side note here, pay artist people. Just pay your fucking artists. They deserve it. Actually... I could I could pop a little yeah. story in there yeah. because there was a guy one of the first one of the one of the early camera inventors he got contacted in the middle of the night from a museum and they said to him you know we'd like the first proto he's like we'd like to purchase the first prototype of your camera as like sure it'll be ten million dollars which is which is insane mm -hmm. you know to some people and they're like how where the fuck did you get that number from and he's like no ten million dollars. He's like, why? And he's like, well, because I'm not stupid and I know you're going to charge people admission mm -hmm. and you're going to get a lot of money anyway. And I am definitely, uh, definitely of the same mind. They actually paid it, by the way. They paid him the 10 million. Good. There is no lack of funds yeah. for something like the Met, the MoMA. Mm -hmm. A lot of people in big business, they try to fuck people who are smaller. And I think that that's something where... Uh, a lot of artists should get much, much wiser about that. Harlan Ellison tried to do a whole thing about paying the writer years ago, and not enough people listened to it. I've also heard a lot of horror editors try to rebuff Ellison's thing. They'll say, like, oh, if I didn't do free work... I wouldn't be where I am oh today. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you a resounding hear it, go fuck yeah, you yourself. Yeah, you hear it constantly now with the offers of artists who are still being paid in exposure, which is the biggest con you've ever seen. By the, the way, biggest. if if there's anybody you know of an age that you're thinking about doing unpaid internships, don't fucking do it. It's a scam. Right. Don't do it. Right. Get a, and you're get fucking paid people. For your work. You're fucking people who actually do have experience. The mm -hmm. reason why they're using you to do internships. They're going to try and give you they're going to try and give you the dumbest of all explanations. They're trying going to try and accuse you of communism or socialism, in which case I could just tell you, I'm not going to go into it on a Halloween podcast, but <laughs> they, as an accountant, they don't know what the fuck they're uh -huh. talking about. They've just heard it from somewhere else and it's a funny thing to say. Or B, there's somebody else who's older than you who actually was qualified to do that job and you're probably taking their job by doing it. So, and you don't want to work for a company that's going to shiv you and throw you off the side of the ship uh, if you want to make money mm -hmm. anyway. Those aren't the places you want to make money. No. So, yeah. just throwing that yeah. out there. Yeah, and all this was to say, really, that both of these photographers, both Diane Arbus and... Uh, and Ralph Eugene Meatyard, both incredibly talented, still influential on art and cinema over 50 years later, and we have them to thank for some of the most striking visuals in Trick or Treat. And also, it's a nice moment of appreciation for, you know, for Dory and the direction of Trick or Treat to really go back again to the classics like we were appreciating with Tales of Halloween. Like, there's this intelligent and nuanced understanding of the past of Halloween that goes into this, and I really, you know, I love to see it. So, yeah, so if you enjoyed these films, uh, I can definitely say that though Halloween-themed narrative blending anthologies are probably on the horizon, these are the only two I know of that take place on Halloween. 
Um, which is also why I could say me and this nice lady, they share, we shared a brain, but because, <laughs> well, there weren't, if, if those of us who know the field, there wasn't that many to pick from. Mm-hmm. As for Halloween anthology films, and as far as they go, Creepshow, Tales from the Dark Side, mm-hmm. The Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. Chillerama from 2011, XX from 2017, ABCs of Death from 2012, VHS from 2012, Plenty of anthology and narrative blending anthology to go around. Here's my rule of thumb for that, in case you're doing it as a watching party or something. Um, Try to pick it within the same decade if you can, mm-hmm. unless you're doing it like four in the night and you're doing going chronologically. Whichever one of these films you pick, make sure that you pick something that's within the same decade. Uh, try and do them chronologically if you can, but obviously we didn't do it here chronologically. We did it by the number of stories. It kind of just seems like common sense, but uh, or maybe condom sense, but uh, you know, just uh, less stories toward the end of the night, more stories toward the beginning of the night. Just seems to uh, gel better for me. But you know, it's your party, you do whatever you want. Um, yeah. Do we have any good causes we want to promote? Or? Um, you know. No, fuck the yeah, children. You no, know, the, the biggest thing I'll say is like. Get good candy if you're giving out candy at Halloween, motherfuckers. Don't give out shitty candy. Just, you know, make those kids happy and do it at a distance. (laughs) Yeah. So as usual, you know, um, you know, our advice for this Halloween would be please continue practicing social distancing. Mm -hmm. The shit isn't over. Um, Please take care of one another. Please, you know, don't don't buy shitty candy. Shitty candy's not cool. (laughs) Um. Yeah, don't hand out, like, pennies or Advil or, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and good luck with your costumes. Get some good costumes on. I'm, God, I love Halloween. Okay. Um, (laughs) And by God, have fun. uh, We could use it. make the most of it. I'm sure that after your last year inside that you're going to be much more grateful for being outside (laughs) and being able to breathe the fresh autumn air without, Mm -hmm. like, fear of contagion. So, yeah. Yeah, happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween. Bye. Bye. The Late Night, a horror podcast, is brought to you by Moner T. Lawrence. Find us at moneria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.